They were so angry, they were out of their minds, and their anger was directed at Jesus Christ who had just verifiably healed a man in front of them. Folks, this is how unbelievers react to God. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his current series with part four of The Sabbath and the Heart of God. Throughout this series on the encounter between Jesus and a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees, found in Mark chapters 2 and 3, we've seen the heart of God on full display through the words and actions of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Tom will show you today, there's not a single person who is too far from the heart of God. The invitation from the Lord of the Sabbath is this, repent, believe, and enter into the spiritual rest of the only one who has the power to save. No one is beyond the reach of the grace of God. Let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed. Now, that was Jesus' first question. It was a question about what he should do regarding the man with the withered hand. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? But the second question Jesus asked them wasn't about what he was going to do. Instead, because as Luke says in the parallel passage, he knew what they were thinking, his second question is about what they are going to do. And he asked this question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill? Jesus wasn't planning to either save a life or take a life on that Sabbath. He was just talking about healing a withered hand. But these Pharisees were about to deal with this very choice. On that Sabbath, they were going to decide whether Jesus should continue to live or whether he should die. And so what this is really, I have to agree with several commentators that this was a call to repentance. This is a less than subtle way to say to them, I know what you're thinking, and let me ask you what's more appropriate. For me to heal on the Sabbath, as I'm about to do, or for you to plot my death on the Sabbath, as you are about to do? This question wasn't a shot across their bow. It was a direct shot into the bow. But undoubtedly, Jesus' point, his intention was to stop them short, to give at least one of them or some of them the opportunity to think about what was really going on. What was their response? Verse 4 says, but they kept silent. They had no other choice. If they agreed with Jesus on the first question, their position and their hold on the people's consciences went away. If they disagreed with Jesus, they were clearly contradicting both common sense and the scripture, and they were therefore undermining people's confidence in them and their spiritual leadership. So picture the scene at this point in the synagogue. Here's a crowded synagogue, maybe upwards of 500 people crowded in the synagogue, This man has been called to the middle. Jesus has asked them this question. Here stands this poor man with his withered right hand. And Jesus has confronted the Pharisees as they've been hanging over him like vultures. And now they're standing there absolutely silent. There's a chilling silence. The people are waiting with bated breath to see what's going to happen. The atmosphere would have been absolutely electric at this point in the synagogue. The new rabbi is taking on the Pharisees from Jerusalem. 
That brings us to the third contrast, the Lord's heart versus the sinner's heart. Look first of all at the Lord's heart. You see it in verse 5. There was anger and grief at their sin. Verse 5 says, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Luke, by the way, makes this look that Jesus gave even more piercing because Luke puts it like this. He says, after looking around at them all. It's like Jesus goes from face to face, from Pharisee to Pharisee, after asking them that question. And his look, you'll notice, is with one filled with anger. The Greek word is orge. It's a slow-burning anger, like lava building up inside of a mountain. The righteous indignation of God. But at the same time, he was angry. The text says he was also grieved. As one lexicon, Greek lexicon, defines this Greek word for grieved, it means to feel sorrow or grief together, to feel sorry for. So at the same time that he was angry, he also felt a grief and a sorrow for these men. What created that emotion in our Lord? Notice it says he was grieved at their hardness of heart. To us, what does hard-hearted mean? If you say someone's hard-hearted, you mean they are cruel, insensitive. That's not what the Hebrew expression hard-hearted meant. In the Hebrew mind, to be hard-hearted, go back and trace it in the Old Testament, to be hard-hearted means to resist the will and purpose of God, to be unteachable and proud. Jesus felt both anger and grief because of their hard-heartedness. But that isn't all Jesus felt. Notice verse 5 goes on to say he felt compassion for the hurting. After he looked around at the Pharisees, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Jesus intended to heal this man. But as he so often does, he calls on this man to express his faith. Think about what Jesus asked him to do. He's standing in the middle of a crowded synagogue on the Sabbath. His physical disability, apparent and obvious, and then Jesus asked him to do the worst thing for a person with a physical disability, especially in the less sensitive times that they lived in. He asked him to expose his withered limb for everyone to see. What was going on here? It was a call to trust Jesus, to obey him when it didn't seem to make sense. As one commentator says, faith is not a private wager, but a public risk that Jesus is worthy of trust when no other hope can be trusted. Alan Cole writes, if the man truly desired healing, he must be willing to confess his need and to show his faith in the power of Jesus by standing up in the face of the whole congregation and displaying his need. It was a cup of shame bitter to drink. But our Lord is compassionate toward this man. The third thing we see about our Lord's heart is that he delights in doing good and saving a life on the Sabbath. Look at verse 5 again. The man stretched out his hand, and his hand was restored. Stretching out his hand was a picture of his faith. 
And when he did, his hand was restored instantaneously, completely, publicly, unquestionably. He was healed. It was restored. Whatever his condition had been, his right hand is now exactly like his left in full and perfect health and even healthier. Did you notice the genius of our Lord? There was no question in anybody's mind there that Jesus healed this man. But he didn't touch him. He didn't apply any medicine. He didn't do anything to him. He merely willed this man to be healed. By the way, Jesus doesn't promise us that he will do this for us at all, certainly not every time, but he still has the power to do it, doesn't he? So Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath, but technically he did no work and cannot be accused even of breaking their silly little rules. So do you think that the Pharisees were glad when Jesus didn't work on the Sabbath? You think the Pharisees were glad when this man and his infirmity was healed? If you do, you better think again because that's not how a sinner's heart works. We've seen the heart of our Lord, the heart of God. Now let's look at the heart of a sinner, really our heart. Notice, first of all, there's anger at God. You don't see that as clearly in Mark's account, but in Luke's account, listen to what Luke writes. After Jesus did this, Luke 6, 11 says, but they themselves were filled with rage. The Greek word for filled with rage here is anoia. Noia is the word for mind, and ah is the alpha privative. It negates it. Like amuse, muse means to think, amuse means not to think. Amusement means to do something that doesn't require any thinking. Anoia, then, is the opposite of using your mind. One lexicon defines it like this. It is a state of such extreme anger as to suggest an incapacity to use one's mind. Extreme fury, great rage, mad out of their minds. What kind of reaction is that? Jesus didn't break their rules. And yet Jesus saw this man healed. This is anger at God. They were so angry, they were out of their minds, and their anger was directed at Jesus Christ, who had just verifiably healed a man in front of them. Folks, this is how unbelievers react to God, to the righteousness of God. Martin Luther, you remember the account of before he came to faith in Christ as a monk, He says, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Folks, that isn't an anomaly. People don't want to admit this reality, but it's simply true. Romans 1 says, for even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. And how does that express itself? Down in Romans 1.31, it says they become haters of God. One of the most interesting illustrations of this hatred that comes out of the heart of man toward God is found in the book of Revelation. I won't turn there with you, but sometime read Revelation 16. Verses 9 and 11 and 21, as God pours out his wrath and fury upon the earth, 
you would expect men to want to repent. But what do they do instead? It says they blaspheme the God of heaven. They gnaw their tongues in anger at God. This is how sinners respond. Folks, this is how we respond naturally to God. You say, I don't remember being angry at God. If you weren't angry at God, it's because you didn't understand what God was really like. When you see God and you're a sinner and you understand his standard, the natural heart is to be a hater of God, not to glorify God, not to give thanks, to blaspheme God. Our world is filled with people who blaspheme God. My daughter and I were sitting at lunch today because my wife is home with a couple of sick kids and we were sitting in an area restaurant and heard a couple of families nearby and the kids were constantly using the name of God in vain. You say, well, what does that show? Well, for some, it's merely a habit, but for others, it is an expression. And I've seen and heard it and witnessed it myself. It's an expression of anger and hatred at God for various things that he's brought in their life. The sinner's heart continues to be revealed. Instead of concern for others, there is concern only for oneself. Notice that from the beginning, their only concern had been about themselves and their agenda. They evidenced absolutely no concern about the man with the paralyzed hand, and they seemed to be untouched by his healing. It's just like Jesus said of them in Matthew 23, in that list of woes about the Pharisees. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. This is how false teachers are. They are in, uncompassionate and unconcerned about people. But that's not just true of false teachers. It's true of people at large. Titus 3.3 tells us this is how we used to be. We also once were, and it lists a number of things, and then it says we were hateful and hating one another. Unbelievers are all about themselves, and they are hateful and hating one another. You also see the heart of a sinner here in that there is doing evil and even plotting to take a life, in this case on the Sabbath. Verse six, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Luke explains that as soon as they left the synagogue, they discussed together what they might do to Jesus, and soon they also made contact with the Herodians, a group called the Herodians. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time here, but just uh, because they're mentioned so rarely, we know very little about this group. You see the word Herod in the name. That's because they were probably supporters of Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. There's an interesting possibility. If you look at how the high priests were selected, Herod's family selected the high priest before 6 AD, and again after 37 AD, the Romans did in the middle. And most of the appointments that the family of Herod made was one family, the house of Bothus. And it's very possible, some think, and Harold Honer takes this view, that the Herodians were Bothusians. They were part of that family that was part of the high priests, except when the Romans were choosing them. But regardless, the point you need to get is that they were political. They were not very religious. They supported the corruption of the Jewish culture with Greek culture. They were willing to support a pawn of the Roman Empire, Herod, 
So these are strange bedfellows. The rabidly Jewish ultra-religious Pharisees and the Hellenistic political Herodians. Hendrickson says, a strange coalition between the sanctimonious and the sacrilegious. But they were bound together by their hatred of Jesus. They wanted Jesus dead. Look at verse 6. It says, they began conspiring as to how they might destroy him. They wanted him dead because they were convinced that regardless of what had happened, that he was actually a lawbreaker and he ought to be put to death. Don't miss the irony of what's going on here. They believed Jesus had broken the Sabbath by healing. And yet on the very same Sabbath, they are plotting Jesus' death. Amazing. Folks, the Pharisees hated Jesus. Why? Well, religiously, because they had created a false system and Jesus was showing it for what it was, its moral bankruptcy. They also hated Jesus for a personal reason, and that was envy. He was undermining them and their position and their authority, and several texts make that clear in the New Testament. False religion always hates the real Jesus, but the Herodians also hated Jesus, and the Herodians hated him for different reasons. Politically, they wanted to maintain the status quo. They wanted to see Israel rule itself. That's Herod Antipas on the coin, by the way, if you're curious. They also hated him for a personal reason. They wanted to preserve their lifestyles, their money, their power, their luxurious lives. They were nominally religious, but they were really secular. And Jesus confronted their personal goals, desires, and agendas. The point is this, listen carefully. All men, religious, irreligious, are united in one thing, their hatred of the true Jesus, whether they are ensconced in false religion or whether they are rank secularist. Almost two years before his death, the religious and political leaders of the nation are plotting Jesus' death. Jesus has to conduct the rest of his time on earth in the shadow of the cross. But this passage isn't primarily about the hatred of the Pharisees. This passage is about God. Specifically, it's a revelation of the heart of God. Be encouraged, because here we get a glimpse into God's heart, and I want you to see how practical it is. We see the heart of God in His creating the Sabbath for man. He made the Sabbath as a way that man wouldn't have to work every day. There would be a rest and a break for him to think about things eternal, to recharge physically and spiritually. This was an expression of God's goodness to His creation. You see the heart of God in his concern for the daily needs and regular issues of man's life, whether it's having food to eat, as we saw in the account last week, or whether it's needing your body healed. Jesus was concerned in both cases. Folks, Jesus is concerned as well about our needs in the same way. That's why we're taught to pray. You remember in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Your Father knows, Jesus says, that you have need of these things. Listen, we live in difficult financial times. Don't imagine for a moment that your Father doesn't care about your situation. If you want to know Jesus' heart and the the heart of God, look at his response to these human needs. Where there was human need, he desired to meet those needs. But we also see the heart of God in his concern for those that were affected by the fall. Affected physically, with sickness. 
You know, it's so important to keep the right perspective about sickness and illness. Listen, folks, God permitted sickness and disease. God uses sickness and disease. God directs it to ends that meet his purposes. But make no mistake, sickness and disease are a direct result of the fall. They're part of the curse on the earth. And someday, they'll be, they'll be gone. Revelation describes a day when there will be no more death and no more pain. They are enemies And you see in Jesus' response to the pain and suffering that he meets, the heart of God toward the pain and suffering that we experience physically. You ever wondered how Jesus would respond to you in the suffering that you experience? You want to know the heart of God? Look at Jesus' response to the people he met. But God is also deeply concerned about the spiritual results of the fall and the place of sin. Did you see Jesus' response to it in the Pharisees? There was anger. And by the way, that person, the person who doesn't know Jesus Christ, just as with these Pharisees, God is angry with. Don't kid yourself if you're not a Christian that God is okay with that. God is okay with your sin. Just as Jesus was angered by the sin of these Pharisees, he is angered by your sin if you're not in Christ, and even if you are, if it's a hard-hearted rebellion against him and you're unwilling to turn, there is anger in the heart of God when there's sin. But at the same time, he was grieved. Grieved. You sense in Jesus' look at these men, in his questions of them, that he was offering himself to them, that he wanted them to repent, that he wanted them to wake up. In fact, you remember that whole chapter, Matthew 23, that's an indictment of the Pharisees? You remember how it ends? Jesus is looking over the city and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you as a, a hen beneath, chicks beneath her wings, but you would not. You see the heart of God for people, even for these Pharisees. Listen, have you ever wondered how Jesus would respond to you if you don't know him? Just as he did with these Pharisees, he would offer you himself, but you would have to turn from your sin. It's amazing to see the heart of God in the life of Christ. You want to know how God would react to the physical suffering in your life or the lives of those you love? Look at Jesus' response. You want to know what God's response would be to the sinners who will repent and turn? Look at how Jesus responded to those who were willing to come. And if you want to know how Jesus would respond to hard-hearted rebellion, look at how he responded to the Pharisees. Here we see the heart of God. But the story isn't over because the day comes when Jesus gets a trophy Pharisee. Fast forward a few years, just a few years, less than five years from this incident, and Jesus shows up from heaven on the Damascus Road, and he gets the best and the brightest Pharisee, and he changes him. There's the heart of God. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed, and that concludes our current series, The Sabbath and the Heart of God. Join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. But Tom, before we end our time today, would you share a closing thought with us? 
you know, friend, can I just make this very personal? Can I just encourage you to really search your heart and ask if you have come to enjoy the wonderful truth of eternal rest that's found in Jesus Christ? You know, the Lord of the Sabbath invites you to repent of your sins, to believe in Jesus Christ our Lord, in his perfect life, in his substitutionary death, in his resurrection. And in believing, you will enter into the spiritual rest of the only one who has the power to save, the only one who can truly give your soul rest. And no one is beyond the reach of his grace or the invitation to come to him and find true, lasting, eternal rest for your soul. May you find that rest today. Thanks, Tom. And friend, to serve as an elder in a local church is a noble ambition, but it comes with a sobering responsibility. The existing church leadership must actively be seeking to identify, equip, and appoint elders to continue the work of ministry. Invite your pastor and other church leaders to join Tom Pennington February 18th in South Lake, Texas, as he is a featured speaker at this year's XL Ministries training conference, Becoming Biblical Elders. Visit thewordunleashed.org for more information and registration links to the conference. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.